All right. I'm a man. I've got the remote control. See, so yeah, how it of works. course. Yeah. Friday, January 18th, 2019, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Single Parent, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and person with legal residency in the Netherlands. Our other co-host, Paul Peters, is off taking Photoshop lessons. So how's single parenting going, Molly? It's fucking terrible. Isn't it I awful? Don't, I don't know yeah. how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you found out the thing that all single parents find out yet, which is that you think it's going to be twice as much work, but actually in reality it's like five times as much. It's so much work. <laughs> and I'm just take, I just took care of a dog by myself for exactly. one night, and yeah. it was terrible. In context, yeah, this is... You're looking after a dog. I'm not, looking not after two a dog. Children. My own dog. Yes. And all my partner did was stay one night out of the house, and I lost my mind. And yeah. And when I turned up this it. morning, your dog practically ran across the he street. He ran out the door and, like, tried yeah. to run out the east. He, like, tried to escape. That's how bad the situation yeah. Yeah, has exactly. been. Exactly. You've got you total off. cabin fever. And uh, how's your legal residency situation going? I saw that you got a letter. Uh, a lot better than uh, it was up until now. Yes, well, I, I got the letter that all British uh, citizens in the Netherlands have been getting to saying that uh, we can stay, basically, so hurrah to that. Yeah, yeah. so you're not going to have, we're not going to have to, like, s- secretly build a room behind a bookshelf. And no, you're not going to have to convert. And your two children to live in it. You're not going to have to convert my cellar uh, in The Hague. And also, I'm not going to have to take the inbirthing exams. I, yeah, I don't want to talk about this. You and I just uh, like saying that. Yeah, fuck off. Yeah. Speaking of exciting things, I hear that uh, someone is moving. And yeah, it's we have not two... me, finally. No, indeed. Yeah, we have two new residents. In... Yes. Oh, no, five new residents. Five new sorry, residents in, in, in the Hague. Hague. So, so welcome to King Willem Alexander and uh, Queen Maxima and their three children who are now officially residents of the Hague because they've gone down to the council office and Registered. signed into the register. I yeah. saw the uh, photos of those. Yeah, I, I did think, first of all, were they living there illegally? But no, of course, his his home, although he's got a palace in um, in the Hague, his official home was in Vassenaar yeah. until last weekend. And what is the the reason for them moving? Uh, well, they've actually the palace that they were going to have as their residential palace was being renovated up until now. It was, it was previously Beatrix's home. Gotcha. Uh, so he's got his working palace, yeah. uh, it was Palace Place Nordander, um, but now he's actually got a house or a palace he can live in. I in would like a working palace and a home living palace. I wouldn't mind Is that. that yeah, I'm, I'm quite on for that. Yeah. This week, we'll tell you about cleaning up the mess in the red light district, the garbage situation one Dutch skater found himself in, and in our discussion, we'll get into the absolute rubbish heap that is Brexit. So, Paul, despite the fact that he's not being here, who I think he actually has like a school thing to do. Uh, yeah, he's got something actually has some actual work to do for a change. Yeah. Rather than just photoshopping and tweeting. Right. Uh, he was supposed to send us uh, the Alpef. But yes. we got no Alpef from him. No, but what we do have... Yeah, what we have instead are the results mm-hmm. from our poll from last week. Yeah. So, for anybody who did not listen, you need to go back to last week's uh, podcast and listen, because we selected, through a very scientific method of just arguing about it on WhatsApp, mm-hmm. our 11 top... Uh, our paths well, of 2018. What we actually did is we selected our top 10 together and we spent about a day agreeing that and then at the end you just chucked an extra one in. That's exactly and right. Guess, guess which one has won. And guess the, which one has won our poll. poll. So we uh, we asked everyone to vote. Um, we put up a poll and the highly scientific and very important poll results are in. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to tell everybody what the top uh, three are. If they want to hear about the top 11 of last year, they have to go back and listen to last week's podcast. But in third place, we had a tie for number three. Yep, which is between the Blockierfriesen, which, uh, just to remind everybody, was the people who uh, blocked the motorway to stop the protesters against Frater Piet getting through to the demonstration in Friesland last year. which probably wouldn't have been an offhap. I'll pef necessarily, but then they proceeded to go on and end up in court, and it was a, just a and total TV. and complete shit show. It was like rolling op pef. It was it? just, yeah. it was just, there was just so much op pef to yeah, give. Yeah. That tied with the op pef about the Tweede Kamer flag. Yeah, which, which was, was Paul's favorite of yeah. last year about the Tweede Kamer trying to put a Dutch flag in Parliament mm. that ended up costing a ridiculous amount of money and looked suspiciously like one of those little flags that you stick in a cheese cube uh, yes. for your birthday. Yeah, and the people who hated the fact there was no flag then just hated the the flag that had been. Bought so it didn't solve anything no and then they had to replace it with yet another flag and (laughs) twitter was all agog Mm. for several days photoshopping (laughs) this flag and all sorts of things it was quite enjoyable and uh our second place also led to a whole host of photoshops including (laughs) i think the probably the most reused image in the dutch news podcast photoshop yeah and it'll probably be used again this week uh, if paul's got nothing to do with it yeah i Um, think so for sure yeah which is the one about uh, thierry baudet's um photo that he took on the holiday of himself lying by an infinity pool um uh in uh, what the dutch called adam's costume adam's costume yeah (laughs) Yeah, uh with his uh his twitter comer flag uh delicately hidden by uh his hand thank god yes but our top our top Ophef of And you say this with so much relish, even though it's quite clear that the poll was totally rigged. I completely rigged this poll. <laughs> I, I personally voted, I think, at least three times. Um, I definitely encouraged everyone I know to vote specifically for this option because I feel very strongly that it was the best Ophef of 2018, which is the striptease crash sex party, <laughs> which for anyone who was not aware... Uh, was a situation that happened in Utrecht, wherein uh, a crash uh, during operational hours had a birthday party for one of the colleagues, the adults at the crash, mm-hmm. and it involved a striptease and licking whipped cream off of someone's nipple, um, which <laughs> would have been an op-hef by itself. But what made it the best op-hef of the year, in my opinion, was is that they were ratted out to the organization that oversees like healthcare services. Mm. And they got in trouble, the crash did, um, for doing this. And then the crash proceeded to sue this organization (laughs) to try to find out the name of the informant. Of the whistleblower. Which was crazy. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the top uh, puff of 2018. Yep. The striptease whistleblower. The striptease whistleblower. Mm. So I encourage all of our listeners to go back to listen to last week's podcast if they have (laughs) not listened to our discussion about Alpef. It was really great. So about three minutes ago in the podcast, we uh, lied to you. And we said that we had no Ophef of the week because Paul hadn't done it. Yeah, by that point, that was true. Which was true yeah. at the moment that we recorded it. But now, now we have an Ophef. Yeah. So we are going to go ahead and bring you the Ophef, which Paul apparently managed to write while taking his Photoshop class. Actually, we're not really sure where Paul is. Today. We don't know where he is or what he's doing. Yeah, actually. but he, and did manage, and we did, he did manage to put in an Ophef, so yes. I guess we can't complain as much yes. as we were before. So the Ophef of the week uh, concerns, I'll read it out because it concerns uh, my uh, supposed namesake, uh, although it, I would like to point out that uh, Gordon, the Dutch celebrity Gordon, uh, his real name is, I think, Cornelis Huygenroth, and he's chosen Gordon as a stage name, whereas I, th- I was actually named Gordon by I th- my parents. I think, yeah, but now yeah. you've chosen to make your name be Cornelis Hayden Road, <laughs> so I mean, I don't understand what the difference 
performances here. Yeah, I just like to say he's the fake Gordon and yeah. the real one. Oh, and fair that's, enough. That's it. But singer, presenter, and professional op-hef creator Gordon declared war on television critic Anklade Young this week. Uh, she writes a daily column in Algemeen Dagblad. And just to give you a little bit of background, there are two major commercial TV networks in the Netherlands, uh, RTL and SBS. Uh, the SBS station was taken over by media tycoon John de Mol, who is the guy who gave us Big Brother and therefore uh, is responsible for all of reality TV. Um, and yet somehow he's still alive. Uh, and also gave us The Voice. Uh, in his quest to make SBS great again, de Mol recently contracted a number of RTL stars, including Gordon and Venny van Dijk and his sister, Linda de Mol. Um, but Anne-Claude de Jong wrote in her column uh, in Alchemy and Dachblatt uh, that uh, if Jon de Mol wants to make SBS successful, he should consider other hiring other stars who are not beyond their sell-by date, uh, which was clearly a dig at Venny van Dijk and Gordon. Gordon then t- took this up by responding with a furious tirade on his Facebook page. As one does, as when one, does. one is an mature adult. Um, and he accused Anne-Claude de Jong of being responsible for the split between Fendi van Dijk and uh, former RTL director Elan Gallyard. Oh, even you couldn't pronounce that one, Gordon. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, the director, and the destruction of Humberto Tan's career. And the destruction of Humberto Tan's career, uh, Humberto hosted talk show RTL Late Night, uh, but um, ended up quitting last year because of bad ratings and has been re- replaced by Tavan House. Um, Gordon had invited uh, Angela Dion to have a, a debate uh, in public and, and uh, in, in no way to uh, boost his career profile and his, his own personal ratings. Not at all. Uh, no, uh, but uh, in uh, typical style, he cancelled and called the whole thing off 30 minutes before the show was Such due a to move. go to air. Yeah. Um, but the row has been a talk of the town in the Netherlands for the whole week, yeah. and uh, some stages was trending on Twitter even harder than Brexit. That's uh, yeah, which is quite some going. It's such a Dutch like. It's just so <laughs> Dutch. I feel it, like all yeah. everyone listening to this, unless you've been here for like fifty years, has just like no idea who any of these people who are. who these people are. Yes, yeah, yeah. so what they do. The Ombudsman of Amsterdam, Arda Zormand, has published a string of recommendations to clean up the area of the red light district in the city. Zormand has spent some time living in the district to get to know the problems better and has spoken to more than 100 locals, police officers, and council officials, and has released his final report on the area after three years. The Ombudsman has identified seven key causes for concern. They are litter, over-tourism, public nuisance, homelessness, sex work, drugs, and criminal infiltration. So the big sort of news is that the Amsterdam Red Light District and the sex trade is um, seems to be knee-deep in uh, sex and drug trafficking. Yes, though uh, that is not what he says the worst problem in the neighbourhood is. What is the worst problem in the neighbourhood of Amsterdam? British people. What a surprise. Yes. Uh, so according to the report, it says stag and hen parties, pub crawls, the overuse of drink and drugs by this group of tourists are primarily the cause of problems. Yeah, and does the report have suggestions for cleaning up the area? Uh, deport British people, <laughs> which they've managed it, to do themselves by just leaving the European Union. Yeah, it may solve itself it's, on after March the 29th. It would yeah. be quite funny, actually, if the problems in the red light district mostly <laughs> resolved themselves because of, like, the requirements of the bridge to need a visa to come to the Netherlands. But yeah, I think even the prostitutes in Amsterdam say that their biggest problem is just gawping tourists. Yeah. You know, it actually puts off punters, people who are, who are going to spend pay to spend yeah. time with them, because the, the tourists don't. They spend they spend their money on on on, on the tour guides. Yeah. And and yeah, and then the prostitutes get no um, yeah. benefit from that. Yeah, they want to. Uh, there's been some discussion about them wanting to move out of this particular mm. area or be able to do more work online and like not be booking their clients like through the windows and stuff. But uh, 
the ombudsman's report uh, specifically said things like installing cameras to prevent trash from being dumped, limiting the number of taxis, reducing the presence of organized crime, and rehousing homeless people that live in the area. According to him, actually, in this report, there's like 50 to 100 homeless people that sort of like live in this area, and they cause like a huge disproportionate number of mm-hmm criminal offenses and street harassment and this kinds of stuff. So apparently, according to the report, merely just like rehousing these people, putting them into some sort of housing program might do like quite a bit to improve the safety of the area. The government's plan to cut greenhouse gas emissions has come under pressure this week after Feifei Day MP Klaus Dijkhoff said he had no intention of implementing them in full. Dijkhoff, who's the party's parliamentary leader, said he'd be prepared to let the government fall on the issue. Both the Fefe Day and the Christian Democrats have reservations about the plan, which was negotiated by Mark Rutte last year, and requires the Netherlands to go beyond the terms of the Paris Agreement and cut CO2 emissions by 49% before 2030. The other two coalition parties, D66 and the Christian Uni, support the deal. D66 leader Rob Bietten said in response to Dijkhoff's comments that an ambitious climate agreement was one of the main reasons his party was in government. And he said, quote, without an ambitious climate policy, there is no cabinet. That's a bit of an ultimatum. It is, yeah. It's definitely raising the stake. <laughs> so what uh, is Dijkhoff's beef exactly with the climate deal? Uh, in a nutshell, he says it's too expensive and moreover, the cost is largely being passed on to householders uh, through things like higher energy bills. Um, and Dijkhoff, he's someone who, likes to kind of portray himself as a bit of a man the people, uh, a bit of a street fighter, stands up for the common man, and he attacked pro-environment politicians as, quote, moaners on Twitter. This seems to be part of an ongoing uh, Feifei Day um, strategy to kind of connect with the people by using uh, language that they've just read in the Telegraph. Uh, but as Sipvinia pointed out in his column this week, a lot of the reason household energy bills are going up is because the coalition government doesn't want to impose high tariffs on businesses, such as Shell, because the Feifei Day is the party of big business. Yep. Um, so the decision to wind down gas production in Kronia, which again is something that's been negotiated by the coalition government and driven through by Eric Vibus, uh, is another big factor yeah. in uh, the increased cost. So what is the, uh, what's the real reason behind all this heated rhetoric? Yeah, I think the underlying reason is it's the sort of language you see in election campaigns. And sure enough, when you look at the calendar, there are elections coming up in March to the provincial assemblies. Um, and each of the coalition parties uh, wants to stand out and take its own message uh, to the people. And I think that's why the divisions on the green energy bill, which have always been underlying, are starting to come to the surface. Um, and because most people, as we said, have seen their energy bills go up sharply in the last few months, uh, Dijkhoff clearly believes there's votes to be won by tapping into that sentiment. Uh, but on the other hand, the progressive parties also think that they've got a strong message to sell in terms of we've got to uh, sort out the climate now before we all drown. Two of the biggest Dutch teaching unions have called for an all-out strike on March 15th, which will cover primary and secondary schools as well as colleges and universities. Quote, the pressure of work is too high across the board and teacher shortages are mounting as at primary and secondary schools. That's according to Lisbeth Verhechen, chairman of the AOB teaching union. Um, she said that on Wednesday. So this isn't new. There's been teacher strikes uh, um, before. Yeah, they have. And in response to the previous strikes, the cabinet is boosting spending on schools and colleges by 831 million euros this year, which is more than any other sector. But the campaigners say the government should increase that spending on education to 3 billion euros. Yeah. And what's interesting about this is that this hasn't been a campaign led by politicians. It's been a kind of social campaign led by a movement set up by primary school teachers to kind of basically close the gap on pay with secondary school teachers. I think it's fair to say gain quite a fair bit of popular support as well. 
In sports news, the speed skating season is in full swing and not even a heavy suitcase could stop Sven Kramer winning his 10th European all-round title uh, this week. Kramer overcame a back injury which he suffered in October when he was lifting a bag to claim the title in Calalbo in Italy at the weekend. Uh, he also had to fend off a strong challenge from his teammate Patrick Rust. The short track skaters have also been in action closer to home in Dordrecht where Susanne Schulting was the star of the show. She became the second Dutch woman to win the all-round title but she had to do it the hard way. She was penalised in her strongest event, the meters and that meant she needed to win the 3,000 meters to take the title and she did it in style breaking away from the field with five laps to go but it has not been a uh, all good news for the uh, Dutch speed skating team, has it? No, uh, short track skater Shinki Knecht has been, was taken to hospital last week. He's, um, he had an accident in his home involving a wood-burning stove, which is a lot more serious than it sounded at first uh, uh, on first take. He, he ended up suffering third-degree burns Ugh. and was in intensive care and seems terrible. to have got burns on almost all over his body. Um, he was recovering from an earlier accident as well involving a forklift truck. Uh, where he got stuck on uh, between, um, I think, between the front door of his house and the truck. Um, Has anyone considered putting Shinky Connect in one of those like bubbles? And I was going like, to say, not letting him I think out? he needs to have a panic room and yeah. just be kept in it for the next so, six months. He seems to be uh, a very accident prone. Skating Association Kyanis Bay said his clothing caught fire while he was lighting a wood burning stove. Manager Dennis Cluster says he's aiming to be back in action next season. So yeah, he, he's written off this winter, basically. He is uh, He is out of the ICU. He was released on Wednesday. Yes, he so was. So hopefully, hopefully he'll be back. We hope he's starting to feel bit better and in a bit less pain and uh is it time for a footstick ball sport thing that you people seem to care about? It is, yes. So the Eredivisie is back this weekend after the winter break uh, with a full programme. Uh, Vitesse Arnhem are kicking off the second half of the season against Excelsior on Friday evening. Uh, PSV, who are two points clear of Ajax, have to travel to Emmen, while the Amsterdamers are at home to Heerenveen. Uh, both those games are on Sunday. What is Dutch. The government's sociocultural think tank, the SCP, is currently researching just that question. And this week, Joop de Hart, who works for the organization, gave the public some hints. Survey participants list the language, the national anthem, King's Day, cycling windmills, dikes, reclaimed land, the Delta Works flood defense system, Rembrandt's Night Watch, freedom, equality, Johan Krauf, and Anna Frank as things that define the Dutch identity. And Anna Frank, wasn't she German? Yes, but uh, the national anthem also credits Germany, so this seems to be a bit of a theme. Yeah, and also credits the King of Spain yeah, as well, of course. as one yeah. does. And actually, when you look at through all these things, like tulips uh, actually came from Turkey. Turkey. and yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so on. And uh, yeah, so De- Delft uh, porcelain was really just a, a knockoff of uh, Chinese porcelain. Yeah, the Dutch <laughs> are quite good at uh, taking things on as their own and then presenting Cultural appropriation. The world. Cultural it, appropriation, yeah. yeah. Do you th- did you see the list? Uh, did you see the score? I haven't seen the full list. No. Yeah. But, uh, did you think that there was anything like missing from what we uh, what we just mentioned? Uh, well, I don't. See, uh, I think uh, they should certainly include Stroopwafels on the list. Yeah, Stroopwafels uh, should definitely all-time be on the list. All time great Dutch creations and shouldn't be messed with by adding in sort of spurious ingredients like lavender. They're delicious. <laughs> Maybe you can add in a tulip. Yeah, we should add in the circle parties as yeah, well. Yeah, circle I think, parties. Definitely. I definitely think are, yeah. are a very very Dutch thing. I mean, there's a lot of like Dutch food that I think is very underrated that Dutch people don't realize is. Like yeah, Dutch and that you don't discussion. have over somewhere else. Like yeah. a lot of like the snack bar food. I think there's like, like the croquette. Of, yeah, yeah, croquettes and bitterballer. But there's like but, a lot of pastries too. Patatje oorlog as well. Patatje oorlog is yeah. delicious. Kapsalon. Yes. That's mm. also a good one. Yeah. So. And are these the final results? No, the final report is due out on May 7th and I'm sure we will discuss it when it comes out. We will be discussing Gordon's absolute favorite thing on planet Earth, Brexit. Do we have to? After this word from our sponsors. Stay up to date with the news about the Netherlands with Dutch News. Dutch News is the country's leading English language news website 
bringing you the latest in news, politics, sports and more every day. We cover all of the news about the Netherlands in English for an international audience. You can find Dutch News online at www.dutchnews.nl or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at DutchNewsNL. So Gordon, how's things? How's life? Well, you know, I've had to... Worse weeks. Have think, you had um, worse weeks? I, I have actually had worse weeks. And that's yeah. probably in, in, true. In the context of the last two and a half years, this has not been the worst week. Fair enough. Um, so let's start out with uh, the most important Brexit-related news in this Brexit discussion. Something that we mentioned at the top, which is, is that you got your Brexit letter, right? My Brexit letter dropped on the doormat last Saturday from the Dutch government, telling me what's going to happen in the increasingly likely event of a no-deal Brexit. Okay. So for anyone who didn't catch the discussion about this, was it last week, two weeks ago? Yeah, last Last week. week, yeah. Can you remind our listeners what the Dutch government came up with in the event of a hard Brexit for British citizens living in the Netherlands? Yeah, the Dutch government has said it's going to introduce its own transition period, first of all. So that is going to run until July 2020. Now, importantly, this is not the same, because some people got confused about this, this is not the transition period that will be built into any deal between Britain and EU. This is if there's no deal. This is a transition period just for the Netherlands. Right. And British citizens will be allowed to stay here until July 2020. And in the interim time, they will have to apply for a residency permit. If you've been here for five years or longer, you get permanent residency. If you've been here for less than that time, you can apply for a just a standard residency permit, which costs 57 euros. And that basically means you can stay. I mean, there are a few conditions attached, but it pretty much means that you're entitled to stay in the country on the same terms. Yeah. Uh, of course, what it doesn't mean is that you can now move to another European country because that's something out beyond the remit of the Dutch government. Yeah. But it is, I think, about the most favourable deal you could possibly imagine if there is a no-deal Brexit. Yeah. Honestly, it was, it was too favourable. Um, and I... <laughs> I am demanding that you, Gordon, and also uh, our lovely previous interview subject and Twitter person that I harass frequently, Ben Coates, mm. do a version of the embarrassing exam in order to be able to stay. I so think we I'm should just do it anyway. Just yeah. To, yeah. Just, I'm going to put together the, uh, the to embarrassing questions, really. yeah, and yeah. then you can we can see if you can pass them. Okay. So what we just discussed, as you mentioned, is in the event of a no-deal Brexit or a hard Brexit. Um, so there may be a deal that is made between the UK and the Netherlands or the UK and Europe maybe Gordon maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, and in the event of that there will there may be other terms and conditions negotiated for uh, UK citizens that are living here we will note a couple of administrative things that you're going to be sent your letter by post from the immigration service you will get the deals of this arrangement and in order to do that you need to make sure that you're registered with your local Gemeente yeah that's important because otherwise they'll send it to the wrong address right. and what you will also get is that, yeah, most people will have had or will soon be getting this letter that uh, I received last week which yeah. really sets out the process from this, this point on um, the next letter is going to be the one that basically says uh, what you need to do to apply for your residency permit. Right. Yeah. So, you know, keep an eye out for that and uh, be prepared for it to show up in the mail if you yeah. are a British citizen. And they're also doing it in stages is yeah. an important thing. So, you yeah. might so not if you haven't gotten yours yet, don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. It's coming. They have like a date, I think, yeah. until the summer when they're going to be send out all of the letters. They're giving themselves a year, I think, yeah. up until April 2020 because there's 88,000 British people living yeah. in the Netherlands. If they do them all at once, it's going to clog up the immigration yeah. service for everybody else. So don't panic if you haven't gotten your letter. Just make sure your registration is correct you will get it so the netherlands has negotiated this deal but despite that there are four british nationals living here who are suing the dutch government for clarity about their continued eu citizen rights correct yes basically this is a court case um, brought by a number of um, uh, british citizens who want to 
basically continue to be European Union citizens as individuals, even though their country has left the EU. And so the argument is that because it's on your passport that you're a citizen of the European Union, in fact, it says that on the top line um, before it says UK, that you, that can't just be taken away from you because your government has said it doesn't want to be in the European Union anymore. Oh, that's interesting. So in a court hearing in Amsterdam on Monday, they've asked a judge to help them confirm whether they can work, study or travel abroad in the next 18 months without losing their rights and benefits in the Netherlands. These are all people who don't just live in the Netherlands as UK citizens, but they also have some connection with other European countries, yeah. which is going to be a real conundrum to untangle uh, yeah. for, a lot, for quite a few people, actually. So the lawyer, Christian Albertin-Taim of uh, Bureau Brantes, has said the Britons he's representing are living now in massive uncertainty and says that under European law, their European Union citizenship is an autonomous right that can't be taken away. It's a follow-up to a case that was rejected by the Dutch domestic courts last year, and the judge has asked for three weeks to make a decision, um, So by which point we will be seven weeks away from Brexit. Yeah. Okay, so that's sort of like the summary summation of like what has happened for British citizens who are living in the Netherlands. Um, but there's some other things that have gone down in the UK this week. Yeah. So, Gordon, what's going on in the UK? Oh, uh, it is... What? How would you characterize it? It's, I characterized uh, it as an absolute. <laughs> what did I call this? An absolute dumpster fire, clusterfuck. Right, yes. Yeah, there was a lot of good uh, words. A, a lot of good euphemisms yeah. uh, coming up. Um, or not even euphemisms anymore, but yeah, just no. an absolute uh, shit show. Yeah, it's an um, absolute shit show. Yeah. But for maybe for people who are like not as aware of what Brexit is, let's kind of like, maybe start a bit from the beginning, mostly because I want to get in my blame at David Cameron <laughs> for all of this nonsense yes. before we start blaming everybody else. Yeah, David Cameron, who was uh, I saw interviewed uh, on the BBC this week, and it was, it was an interview that I think just basically in two minutes summed up David Cameron's contribution to the whole Brexit process because he was asked to be stopped outside his house as he was heading out for, for a jog and uh, asked if he regretted calling a referendum. He said, no, I don't regret it. It was a good thing to do. And then he just ran away. Yeah. He literally ran away down yeah. the street. And yeah. that was just, I think, just encapsulated what David Cameron actually did in calling a referendum on Britain. He, he made it someone else's problem and then just ran away. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's basically what happened. So a number of years ago, the former prime minister of the UK called for a referendum on Brexit. There had been agitation amongst the UK population about its membership in the EU. There mm. had been some complaining about immigration issues and regulation issues and these sorts of things. There had, but more to the point, there had been a big, almighty big uh, ongoing row within the Conservative Party yeah. about Europe. There were right. pro-Europeans and there were people who wanted to leave the European yeah. Union. And David Cameron couldn't reconcile these two factions. He said, I know what we'll do. I'll let the people sort it out. Yeah. And completely gambled on the idea that people would vote to remain in the European Union and had no plan at all for what would happen if they voted to leave. Yeah. And what happened was they voted to leave. Yeah. So David Cameron uh, ran off, uh, literally resigned. Yes. Theresa May took over. And they basically had two years because the rules of the European Union say if, you, if you're going to get out, you've got two years to like negotiate your divorce, basically. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to actually invoke Article, Article 50 15. of the Lisbon Treaty. Yeah. So, uh, and once you've done that, you've got two years. You, got so you two actually years. get, in practice, you get a bit longer. Yeah. Because you can take a little time yeah, to invoke. You, you can um, you know, di uh, dictate the timetable a bit. Yeah. So yeah. They, they did invoke, and the end deadline is March 29th of this year for when the UK is leaving the European Union with or without a deal. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that is happening. Yeah. So... Fast forward, they've been attempting to negotiate some sort of goddamn arrangement yeah. for leaving, some sort of divorce agreement. Mm -hmm. Theresa May had an agreement from the European Union. Yes. She brought it to a discussion in Parliament before Christmas, mm -hmm. realized that she did not have the votes, yep. so tabled it, 
until this week. Yeah, and she thought when everyone came back, their bits were stuffed and full of Christmas pudding, and they'd had a few nice cosy chats in the whips' offices, uh, the whips being the government officers who are charged with maintaining party discipline, that they'd, that they'd come to their senses and support the deal. But it became pretty obvious over the last couple of weeks that was not going to happen. And sure enough, this week, they put it to the vote in Parliament because they couldn't push it off any longer. The timetable meant they had to get it, the vote in by mid-January. The sideline is that the, the courts have said there must be a vote on this in Parliament. And the government lost the vote by yes. the biggest ever margin that a government has ever lost any vote in the British Parliament in history. Yes. Uh, so it was pretty much the strongest rebuke yeah. possible. Yeah. And after work. that, we yeah. then had the uh, the opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, then table a motion of no confidence in the government, which also failed. Yeah. So both sides have basically completely failed to get what they wanted yeah. out of this. And we're back to square one. So the government did not like Theresa May's deal, but enough of them still like Theresa May to keep her in power. Well, party discipline kicked in. So the, the Conservative Party did not want a general election because uh, they don't want the prospect of uh, surrendering power. And the party that's propping them up, the 10 members of the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, they didn't want a general election because they would then lose the influence they have on the government. Right. So that's why they all backed Theresa May. Okay. And that was inevitable. I think what was interesting this week, there's unlike in previous episodes of uh, Brexit, the clusterfuck, uh, this was actually all quite predictable. Yeah. You could see this coming. Yeah. So, yeah, unlike the actual Brexit referendum, uh, <laughs> yes. we saw this coming. So... Uh, where politically does this leave us? Like, what are the next steps? Like, is there going to be, can Theresa May come back? Maybe this is the first question. Can Theresa May come back to the European Union and get a better deal, a different deal? Like, just like some cheese and then just like go home? Like, can she get anything? Yeah, is she there get any... a goodie bag or something. Yeah. Um, well, that's what she's doing. She's going to Brussels uh, over the next uh, couple of days and uh, meeting European Union officials to see if they can amend the deal at all in any way because she has to go back to Parliament on Monday and say what the next plan is. Problem she's got is that Europe has said quite clearly, quite firmly, the deal that you negotiated back before Christmas is the only deal available and we're not reopening it. And the reason for that is that um, the deal is basically has been struck to accommodate all the red lines that the British government insisted on, that the, the things they didn't want to move on. So it's been structured in such a way that uh, Britain and Europe still have a reasonably open trading relationship, but they are still not in the European Union because Theresa May said very clearly she wants to honour the result of the referendum. But that there is some kind of arrangement that accommodates all the things that Theresa May said that, that, that she would not move on. For yeah. example, things like she does not want free movement of people yeah. between mainland Europe, well, the European Union. Right. And Britain right. uh, after Brexit. Okay. So she's coming to Brussels this weekend. Mm -hmm. There is any chance that we're going to get some kind of different deal? Or does it seem like the EU, kind of generally speaking, is like sticking to its guns and is unwilling to renegotiate? I think it's this is what's really, I think, uh, fascinating and disturbing by turns is that in, in if you listen to the commentary and discussion in Britain, it's all about can Theresa Bay renegotiate with the European Union? Can she go back? Uh, is she in a better position to negotiate, as some people seem to think? And I think quite flatly, no. I think if you look at uh, what's happened on the European side, I really feel like the mood music has changed, finally. I think up until now, European leaders and the European Union have been very patient with Britain. They said, OK, you want to leave the European Union. We don't really want that. We don't really agree with it. But, you know, you've decided you're going to honour the results of the referendum. So we're going to try and cut the best deal we can, spend months negotiating, very patiently sitting and waiting. And now this has been flatly rejected by Parliament. So Theresa May has failed on her side of the bar to get the deal through and the European leaders have said look the ball's in your court now you've got to come out you've got you've got to move on these red lines being I think um, Barnier the uh, EU's negotiator and uh, Jean-Claude Juncker have said very firmly we can only reopen the negotiations if you move on your red lines problem is that's not going to happen because the red lines are all to do with 
the reasons that the Brexit referendum was called in the first place, which yep. is to do with domestic British politics. I think the three main issues in the referendum were that um, people were unhappy with immigration, they didn't want the European courts having jurisdiction over British laws, and they didn't want to keep, they felt that the cost of the European Union were too high, they wanted to spend the money elsewhere. And those are all domestic issues. And the European Union will not get involved in the domestic issues of its member states, and certainly not of a member state that um, is uh, that's about, that's on the brink of leaving. So those are things that Theresa May and the British government have to sort out. Uh, and unless she moves on those positions, uh, there's no prospect of renegotiating the deal. What has the Dutch government been saying about this? Have we heard statements this week from Rutte or anybody else uh, with regards to the deal? I think what Rutte has said, and he's been one of the uh, most prominent voices among European leaders, because he's one of the most senior European leaders, is he said quite bluntly, this is the best deal possible. He's also been saying, I think, um, in Dutch to his Dutch audience, if you want an example of how not to govern the country, basically, look at Brexit. So yeah. he's no fan of Brexit at all. No. In fact, he's become more pro-European, yeah. I think, in the last couple of years, uh, as a result of watching what's been going on in Brexit. Also, I think Guy Verhofstadt, the European Parliament's kind of main Brexit spokesman, has said very much the same thing. So th- there's really a sense, I think, they've lost patience now with yeah. the British government because it is not it's just not coming out and saying what it wants or how it can get round this impasse that yeah. it's built for it and things like I mean one of the biggest issues is the Northern Ireland backstop yeah. now in Britain you listen to the discussion it's all about you know can we somehow get rid of the backstop well let's pause yeah. let yeah. us explain what the Brit- the Northern Ireland backstop okay. is okay yeah the Northern Ireland backstop is based, based on the Good Friday Agreement which was uh, between the British and Irish governments to end the violence and the troubles and the bombings and the killings from the 70s to the 90s yeah and one of the key things of that is there has to be an open border within Ireland, yeah. between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And because there's an open border between those two countries, that means there's an open border between the European Union and the UK. The great irony here All is... All right, that, hang, hang on for one second. So, yeah, so there was this horrible period called the Troubles. Lots of, like, violence occurred. And now what has happened is, is that Ireland, as the country, is still in the EU because it is its own country. But Northern Ireland is part of the kingdom of the UK and will be leaving the European Union as a result of Brexit. And so they've really gotten themselves into this extremely difficult spot because Mm -hmm. there is a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And the European Union says, well, if you're in the European Union, you can have border-free zones. But outside of the European Union, you can't, which makes plenty of sense. But this Good Friday agreement says there has to be an open border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And this is a, a very serious sticking point. It is, exactly. And it's been, it tends to be uh, called a red line by the European Union. What it really is, it's just an insoluble conundrum. Yeah. The reason being that when they drew up the Good Friday Agreement, nobody thought in their wildest, worst dreams that either of these two countries would leave the European Union. It's right. all based on the fact that they're within this trading zone. Yeah. And now that one half of it is leaving, it yeah. creates an, an, an impossible situation. Yeah. So this is really an issue. Um, There's Mm. a number of other things that are also like just real sticking points. So where does this leave us? Are we going to have another referendum? Are we going to have a hard Brexit? Are we going to meteor hit the earth and we all go out like the dinosaurs maybe that's the best option that might, at this stage I think that or a big sea monster just rampaging across Britain or something like that is actually probably preferable to what's to any of the Brexit options yeah. uh, and I think you know people have talked about a second referendum they've talked about maybe even just pulling the whole thing revoking article 50 and of course that is a back pocket solution that um, Theresa can you May just potentially... revoke article 50 this is the thing you can because the European court has said quite clearly that um, it's looked at legislation it's looked at um, cases that have been brought to it and has said quite categorically 
quickly that at any stage between now and March 29th, Britain can just say we're cancelling it. We will, it just pulls Article 50 and there's nothing that the European can do about it. And it stays in the European Union on the current terms and conditions. OK, and if it does that, what is the referendum that they had about Brexit, that the UK had about Brexit, is it a binding referendum? Like, Do they no. have to legally adhere to the tenets of this referendum? No, it was quite clearly written into legislation by David Cameron. Uh, remember him? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that it was an advisory referendum. So the government is not bound by the decision, by the vote of the people, okay. even though it's acted as if it is for yeah. all this time. Yeah. So potentially it could pull Article 50. In practice, it won't. Theresa May has said quite categorically that she won't do that because Jeremy Corbyn has said that uh, he wanted a guarantee of no, no deal. The only way to guarantee no, no deal is to pull Article 50 because, of course, no deal is a default option. If you can't make any arrangement, that's what you get. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about that for a second. Well, actually, one other question, and then we'll talk about a hard Brexit. Is there a chance that they opt to have a second referendum? Uh, That is potentially possible. But again, and there's been a big campaign uh, in society for a second referendum and there were people standing outside Parliament this week um, asking for it but Parliament has to pass the law to call another referendum and both parties are opposed to it so as things stand I cannot see a second referendum happening okay so no referendum no revocation of article 50 we get to the March 28th it's midnight doomsday scenario doomsday scenario what happens? What happens is basically that the UK is no longer a member of the European Union. It has no deal. There is no transition period with the EU. There is with the Netherlands because the Dutch government's arranged that. Yeah. Other governments are free to do that as well if they want to. But basically Britain crashes out and there are no arrangements and it goes back to WTO rules which is kind of the default option and basically it's not it's not a good place to be no and it's not a good place to be for a few reasons one you automatically go back to having like border controls between all these countries also trade basically stops so tariffs that the uk you know when it negotiates tariff agreements with other countries it says you know we're going to have an import tariff of 27 percent on peaches um that means you know before this if you were importing peaches from the european union there was no tariff on that but now there will be 25 27% tariff yeah. or whatever i mean that's not the 27% tariff thing is a bit of a made up thing i'm just using it as yeah, an example yeah. you also run into all sorts of problems of british people who are living in the european union who have previously had the right to live here because they're european union citizens also europeans living in the uk like they mm-hmm. immediately lose their right to live and work in these countries yeah trade essentially ceases because you have to sort out what you're going to do. You know, if you're going to have export outside of anybody who has ever ordered anything online that you bring in from outside the European Union has Mm -hmm. to go through like a tax process. If you're an exporter, it has to go through export processes. Now, all of a sudden, like, so if you're just trading between the UK and Ireland basically ceases while they sort all this stuff out. I mean, it's like a serious yeah, basic disaster essentially. Yeah, exactly, and the, and it's a disaster because no arrangements have been made for what to do to continue trade with the European Union. So yeah. go back to as I understand it, WTO rules is basically the baseline. Yeah, and and then you have to pick and choose and make arrangements with your other trading partners yeah. uh, above and beyond that baseline. But basically, we're going back to scratch. It's kind of like you know you trade in your car, whatever you've been driving for a model that was built in the 1970s. It's got no air conditioning. Yeah. It's got no, it's got no power steering. Yeah, and so you can drive it, but it's not going to be much fun. Yeah, and you're really going to feel the difference. Yeah. <laughs> The other things, I mean, the two points I'd pick up on very uh, briefly as well. I mean, firstly, if Britain does cancel Brexit, no one's really thought about what its status is going to be in the European Union. Yeah. Because all trust and credibility and all goodwill towards the UK has just evaporated yeah. over the last few years. It's going to be a really straightened, chastened kind of European partner. And that's not a good position to be in. Yeah, so I, mean, it's I don't a- even know if remaining in the European Union in practice 
is a, is a desirable thing anymore. Although yeah. obviously, in you know, in in principle and in terms of you know not disrupting the economy completely needlessly, it's a good thing. But yeah. I think you know, on further down the line, it's going to cause so much bad feeling between the the, the countries of Europe that it, it's going to leave a very long lasting scar. Yeah, and let's uh, point out that the arrangement that the UK negotiated with the EU when it first became part of the EU and and over the years has been quite favorable towards the yeah. European Union that there's you know there's been a lot of misconceptions I think by leavers who have said like oh we don't have control over like our borders and we don't have control over immigration which is like not totally accurate that like there is a lot of the things that the UK I mean staying on its own currency mm-hmm. and all these other kinds of stuff that the UK has managed to like negotiate yeah. and I think I do not see the Europeans being so generous about these negotiating points I think that's the, the thing I think, I think that's a key point if Britain leaves it will never get back in because it will never be offered the same terms mm-hmm. uh, such generous terms ever again by Europe it just won't, simply won't happen and given that you know a large number of people in Britain well certainly the 52% who voted to leave aren't satisfied with the terms they have now they're certainly not going to accept anything uh, anything less which is what they'll be offered if they, if they want to rejoin the European Union no. at a later date so I think if Brexit happens that's it it's it's a done deal there's no way back yeah so ahead of Brexit there's been some moves for organizations and countries and stuff to sort of start moving away from the UK we saw the European Medical Agency has now relocated mm-hmm. to Amsterdam there yeah. was a report out this morning that Philips has closed its last manufacturing facility in the UK it will be moving it to Friesland which seems like a downgrade but you know yeah. what I think, you know this is the this is post-Brexit uh, apocalypse. Well, Phillips obviously see it as a positive move, so... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's already happening that stuff is kind of moving away from the UK and the yeah. UK is, like, losing its status of maybe, like, the financial capital and, like, these kinds of things because if you can't play in the European Union and mm. you're not America and you're not Asia, then, like, what place do you have in the world? Yeah, that's the thing, and I think it's going to be a rude shock uh, for Britain. That's n- Nobody, I think, really appreciated, even people who were on the Remain side of the debate, just how tightly enmeshed the European economies have become over the last 50 years, and trying to withdraw from that is a gigantically difficult and almost impossible exercise, and, uh, you know, th- I think that's been proven in the course of trying to um, negotiate a withdrawal agreement. And, yeah, it's going to be left as a very small fish in a, in a big world dominated by either huge economies like uh, the US and China or big trading blocks like the European Union. That's the way the world's set up these days. We're not going to go back to the days of empire when Britain was one of a handful of uh, large uh, advanced industrial economies. The world's a very different place and it's going to have to learn to swim fast. Yeah, but fortunately, because your children are Dutch, they can already swim. <laughs> Thankfully. Uh, yes. And uh, you will be staying here because of uh, the Netherlands having negotiated a pretty decent deal. So I think uh, we will we will continue to have your input on Brexit in this podcast. And I am going to uh, organize a, uh, an embarkering uh, exam. exam for mm-hmm. you and Ben. I think that is only fair. So we will uh, update you with everything that's going on. I'm sure we will continue to make terrible Brexit jokes uh, as this podcast continues. Indeed. Yeah. That is all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. My thanks to Gordon Derrick. We hope Paul is still alive somewhere. Do we? Yeah. I'm Molly Quell. We'll be back next week. (laughs) 